I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Liberals believe in the power of debate and persuasion. We have a tolerant mindset and a tolerance for competing views, because we know that it's only through disagreement and deliberation that we can evolve. But even among liberals, it's getting harder for two people who disagree to sit down and have a civilized conversation. So often we feel like we're starting from completely different places with totally incompatible sets of assumptions, even if when, fundamentally, we agree about many things. Michelle Goldberg is a brilliant intellect and a talented author. A liberal New York Jew, she has her finger on the pulse of progressive politics. And she writes eloquently about the intersection of politics, gender, religion, and ideology in her column in the New York Times. She and I agree on many things, but there are other areas where we do not. And I'm looking forward to that challenge. Michelle, it's such a great pleasure to have you with us on the podcast. I've read your columns for years. Uh, I consider you a very influential person in terms of uh, public opinion, not only influencing how people think, but what they should be thinking about. So it's a great honor to have you with us. Welcome to In These Times. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much. I thought it would be interesting first. I'm quite curious to know what the life of a columnist actually is. Do you have the freedom to write whatever you want? And how do you discipline yourself during the week? So in some sense, my schedule disciplines me. It kind of imposes a structure on my life. There's some exceptions, but I usually write on Monday for the Tuesday paper. And then I write a column on Thursday that goes online on Friday and sometimes is in the paper on Saturday. So that kind of gives me the, that gives my week a certain tempo. But you're correct that I have, you know, this kind of unbelievable amount of freedom to follow my interests, which is overwhelmingly a blessing but there's a tiny bit of a curse in there as well in that when you have a designated you know, sort of subject area that you're supposed to cover, it can sometimes be obvious what the next story that you're supposed to be working on mm. is. And you know, there's the kind of paradox of choice, right? That so much choice can be overwhelming and trying to figure out where to put your attention is I think one of the challenging parts of this job. Let me ask you, is, is it harder nowadays to distinguish between opinion and straight up reporting in a newspaper? Is there such a thing as objectivity? And do we even want that? Is it desirable? Look, I don't think there's any such thing as perfect objectivity. I mean, I think all of the decisions that go into any news story from what to cover, who to interview, you know, kind of what to lead with, except in the most straightforward of you know, who, what, where, when news stories, there's a bunch of subjective decisions that, you know, kind of can contain ideological presuppositions. I mean, that said, I just think that there's a discipline to writing a street news story as opposed to an opinion column. I try to, in my own writing, will try to kind of represent counter arguments, but I usually represent them in order to try to refute that. Tear them down. Right. I just think that there are there are kind of different practices, ideally. I mean, I've always read a lot of opinion, and I think at its best, it can be more straightforward because you know exactly where the person is coming from. 
But there are also just, you know, so many things that a straight news reporter can do that an opinion columnist can't do. And so many areas of news that, you know, kind of don't lend themselves to polemics. Do you have a specific point when you when you write an opinion piece? Do you want to achieve something? Do you want people to to just think about the issue, to introduce an issue that they may not have thought about before? Or do you actually want to persuade? I think it really depends. There are a lot of different kind of pieces that I write. You know, there are certainly some where you're trying to persuade, like, I'm going to write a piece later today, or at least I think I'm going to write a piece later today about this, depending on what people tell me when I talk to them about legislation that is being proposed in New York that I think should be taken up. And that's fairly straightforward, right? Like, Democrats should do X. You know, re- Republicans don't care what the New York Times says. So, you know, we don't really have very much influence with them. But, you know, Democrats, especially Democrats in New York, they care. So you can try to actually influence the course of policy. I think that's one kind of column. Another kind of column is trying to think through something that is complicated often rather than me trying to persuade you of what to think it's me trying to work out what I think hopefully in a way that's valuable for other people I think about this on some of the writing that I've tried to do about kind of free speech and free speech to the left and how you balance concern for liberal ideas without falling into what I think of as the far-right panic over wokeness you know Uh it's sort of trying to trying to thread these needles there's columns that i write that are kind of more cultural analysis and then there's columns that are really just i'm thinking of you know the piece i just wrote about kevin mccarthy and the speakership fight i don't know that i was really trying to i don't know that i really need to persuade anybody that this is an example of chickens coming home to roost, but hopefully kind of providing some context. I think it's it's nice when something in the news is, you know, kind of fun because there hasn't been a lot of fun in the news in the last few years. And so, you know, we sort of take our delight where we can find it. That's a good segue to what's going on in our country. How is our country doing? Are we are we in a better place than we were, say, if you take 2016 as the demarcation line of Trumpism, or at least when the president was elected? Now, six or seven years later, are we better off? Are we just as bad? Are we worse off? I mean, I think we're worse off than we were in, say, October of 2016, maybe better off than we were in December of 2016. Look, the Trump years, they both exposed huge crises in America, but also really exacerbated them and a lot of the damage that Donald Trump has done to kind of our epistemological foundations, to the empowerment of the far right, to kind of legitimizing the most radical actors in the Republican Party, and also just giving aid and encouragement to far-right forces worldwide. If that's ever unwound, it's going to take a while. That said, I think we're in a much, much better position, certainly, than we were in, you know, 2019. Part of that, obviously, is just because Donald Trump is in the White House, and that makes a huge difference. And his power within the Republican Party is decreasing 
And then finally, just the midterms were such a huge turning point because the 2020 election, for various reasons, even though Trump lost, it wasn't the kind of unambiguous repudiation that a lot of people were really hoping for and counting on. And so it kind of allowed Trumpism to metastasize. And then seeing Trumpism cost the Republicans so many winnable seats, seeing it cost them the Senate, seeing it kind of create such a crisis for them with their tiny margin in the House. I mean, it both has kind of shown definitively that there's an anti-Trumpist majority in this country and given lie to the idea that that they represent, quote unquote, the people, and also created an incentive, although there are incentives the other way, for some figures in the Republican Party to try to move beyond this hard right, white nationalist adjacent version of populism. And do you think that what Trump represented, I guess, for want of a better term, Trumpism, do you think that has legs beyond Trump in the Republican Party and in the country? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a scatter plot graph that you may have seen where people plot themselves in these kind of ideological quadrants, socially conservative to socially liberal and economically conservative to economically liberal. And the most kind of popular comparison in my experience among people in the Beltway, you know, New York, California, DC, big cities, you know, people at cable news is socially liberal, economically conservative, right? The sort of Michael Bloomberg model, but that's actually extremely unpopular in the country. And the most underserved quadrant is economically liberal, but socially conservative. And Trump, I think, with his kind of feral marketing instinct, identified that, that there's people who are extremely reactionary on social issues, but who are also extremely turned off by kind of Paul Ryan economics. And even though he didn't really do very much to act on that insight, you know, his big accomplishment was this tax cut that benefited the very rich. His pitch was pitched at this underserved block of voters. I think the the nativism, the jingoism, the sort of creation of an alternative reality and this kind of defiant refusal to acknowledge, you know, a shared set of facts. So I think what Trump did is he, he A, made all of the subtext text, you know, he, he kind of stopped dog whistling and just started whistling so that things that people had hinted at before, he just came out and said, right? Just even like, they should go back to their countries. He sort of told Republicans that their most extreme elements actually constitute like the soul of the American Volk, so to speak. So in that sense, he didn't create anything new. He also just has this sociopathic audacity that is, you know, kind of not that common among human beings. I mean, I guess you see it now with George Santos to some extent, but most people they have some residual sense of shame binding them to the world of observable facts. And even if they're kind of inveterate liars, it's just hard for them to say one thing and then say another thing with a total straight face. Whereas Trump, because he just really does have this ability to create his own reality, he gave the entire Republican Party, I think, a sense of like permission 
that they found really thrilling and giddy. And now some of that has fallen away. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to us about the pandemic, about COVID? I remember reading a couple of your opinion pieces, and they were very down to earth about what life was really like, some of our fears. I found it really quite, quite astonishing that just mask wearing became a political issue that identified your tribal identity. Where do we stand on the pandemic now in America? Do you, do you think we're past it? Should we be past it? I think it's actually a very painful issue right now because, I mean, I'm someone who found the pandemic, I mean, you know, everybody found it extremely painful and unbearable in different ways, but there were some people for whom it had certain consolations. There were some people who felt like a sense of coziness or solidarity or whatever. They found something redemptive in it. And I really did not. It was a level of misery that I had not previously known I was capable of, you know, especially having young kids at home. It was just such a hellish experience as a parent. It was such a hellish experience as a family. You mean you mean the isolation, the kind of everybody being together all day, every day? The isolation. The, the fear. The, 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 I don't know about the, the, it's not even so much fear. It was just kind of completely unsustainable, unrelenting demands on parents. I mean, if you had asked me kind of what professions I am cut out for, you know, homeschool mom would be far below like <laughs> landmine detector. It was just my nightmare. Look, the the in many ways, these restrictions were not that gendered. And I, I, I have a very egalitarian relationship. It's not that I feel like they fell most heavily on me. I do feel like I'm just particularly ill-suited. Like I just, I cannot even conceive of baking my own bread. It felt to me like this kind of viral handmaid's tale. Like I was being forced into this role, absolutely kicking and screaming. I have a huge amount of privilege. You know, I, I didn't lose anybody close to me. There, you know, are so many ways that this could have been so much worse for me. But I only say that to say that like I was desperate to get my kids back in school and desperate to achieve some level of normality. I feel like I've seen in my own family that the school closures were socially and educationally catastrophic, even if I think they were necessary, especially early on. I talk a lot to Randy Weingarten. I've written a piece about her. I would be on the phone with her throughout the pandemic. And I know that she knew how important it was to get kids back in school and also kind of worried a lot about the downstream effects on public education if parents felt like they couldn't depend on this institution that they'd always taken for granted. And I think there was a real clash of interests in some cases between parents and teachers that, you know, I would have happily risked my life to not ever have to homeschool. But I understand why teachers didn't want to take similar risks. I think that people who, in the name of COVID cautiousness, downplayed the risks of isolation and I don't even like to say remote learning because that implies that there was learning, but of internet school, I think people downplayed the risks of those things. And that created a lot of anger and distrust, which in turn, I think has come out in rage over masks, rage over quote unquote critical race theory. And so where are we now? I actually wish we weren't so hung up on this issue of masks. I mean, I see people online saying like, bring back masks. I don't want masks in school. I felt like I saw the 
relief and kind of lightness in my kids when they took away the mask mandates. And I don't like it when people pretend that there's kind of no cost to wearing masks all the time to the way it interferes with socializing. I mean, personally, if I'm wearing a mask, I'm just thinking about when I can take it off. But at the same time, obviously, I, I masked, you know, before I was vaccinated and, you know, will mask in hospitals and places where other people are who don't want to risk exposure. But I do feel like there are so many things that could be done that are not intrusive. There could be so much more done with air filters and improved ventilation and all kinds of stuff that wouldn't actually be a culture war flashpoint, except in as much as it would be difficult because things are so polarized to get the proper funding. And it's it's just breathtaking to me that that stuff isn't being done. So, I mean, I don't hold it against public health officials or policymakers, you know, if they didn't have exactly the right balance given that all of the unknowns of the pandemic and so on. But looking back now, you think we tilted the balance overly cautiously, at least with respect to children in schools? It's not that I think it was kind of overly cautious or it's not overly cautious. It's more that the only area in which we kind of were particularly cautious. The only area in which we accepted any kind of restrictions was in schools. And that has to do with, I think, the political power of teachers, which I'm glad they have that political power. The fact that parents kind of aren't an organized political constituency in the way that, say, restaurant owners are, bar owners. And so you had the absurd situation of bars opened and schools closed. It's not that I think that America as a whole was too cautious about COVID, just that our priorities were so warped and parents and children felt the brunt of that. I mean, what do you, like, you're you're a rabbi. Like, what do you think about the kind of relative value of having people back congregating in person versus, you know, kind of people who still think that the right thing to do is maintain maximum safety? I can tell you, you know, when, when the bars stayed open, and the liquor stores stayed open. I used exactly that argument. I said, if those institutions are open, we have a 900-seat sanctuary. I see no reason whatsoever for us not to reopen as well. And I'll tell you more. You rightly focused on schools. It's directly connected to this phase of your life that you're in. Uh, for religion and for synagogues, for example, this COVID pandemic has just been awful because... You know, the essence of a religious institution is face-to-face -face contact. It's the community. It's the center of the community. And you cannot run a community center if the community either cannot or will not congregate. And those habits that have been created now over the years of COVID, they are very hard to break. What we did immediately, and we did a really, and I say this not only in terms of our synagogue, but, you know, throughout the country, religious institutions immediately put in all the technology that they possibly could to make services accessible and even consultation accessible, you know, pastoral care. Everything was converted into a technological ability to reach people right in their living rooms. And what I have found is that they have become habituated to access the community and religion and Judaism in that way. And it's very, very hard to break. I, I call them lazy boy Jews <laughs> because that's how they're accessing religion now. 
It's been very, very devastating. And even though, you know, our kind of our sources of income are reliable so far, they've taken a hit, but not too bad. And the membership has taken a certain hit, but not too bad. Still, in the long run, you can't run a community center if the community is not prepared to show up. So we've been putting enormous energy into getting people back two and a half years after we put the same amount of energy into making what we did completely accessible in their living rooms. And are people coming back? They are coming back. First of all, it's taking an enormous amount of work and a lot of messages that are coming from the pulpit, emphasizing the importance of people coming back, coming back into the community, that communal life is so fundamental to our lives, in particular in New York. It's a bit ironic because we're surrounded by so many people, but loneliness is a, is a big issue in New York. And so they have started to come back, but about, I would say in our case, about two-thirds of what they were pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I just think so much of the kind of social dysfunction that's been exacerbated by the pandemic is just a function of loneliness, isolation, and then people, when they're lonely and isolated, you know, spend more and more time online, which has all these other downstream effects. I just think that like the, you know, it was necessary, especially at the beginning, but the social consequences have been so dire. I agree, and and I would even go further. I, I don't think we have really begun to come to grips with what these pandemic years will have done to us as individuals, as a community, and as a country. It's only when we can really put the pandemic behind us that it recedes from the frontal part of our brain to the recesses of our consciousness. It's only then that I think that we can really, as a community, begin to grapple with the, in some cases, radical changes that the pandemic has brought to us. You know, I think, the, and the problem too is that there's going to be, is that there's people left behind in that process, right? I mean, in some sense, that's kind of where I am. I, I don't think about it that much on a day-to-day basis. You know, I think about if I get COVID again, it seems like much more of an inconvenience than a catastrophe. During lockdown, I thought, you know, so bitterly about every party that I flaked out about or every, you know, screening or preview or something that I was invited to and decided I was too lazy to drag myself to Midtown. And so I've been trying to actually go out much more than I used to. I think I used to think I was an introvert. Then I realized, you know, that I really wasn't as much (laughs) as I thought because, you know, I just had all of it I could take. But I also think that I understand or I try to understand how, you know, enraging and despair inducing it must be for people who don't have the luxury to just say, you know, well, I'm going to throw my hands up and say that kind of a returning to pre-pandemic life is worth some some risk. I mean, that's harder to do if you have a sick kid or if you're immunocompromised or, you know, all the other reasons that people can't afford to be so cavalier about their health. It's just created, I think, a lot of tension on the left in particular, maybe not on the right, because they all just said, you know, screw it. But on the left, you have people who basically believe that the left has been really hurt by relative isolation, by not gathering, by shifting so much communal life to screens into the internet. And those who feel like everyone who kind of wants to be in person again is, is leaving vulnerable people behind. 
Talk to us about the progressive movement and identity politics. As you know, first of all, there is a concern around the country for this polarization that's affecting American society. But also in the Jewish community, there's a certain amount of concern and worry about identity politics and the progressive left and a whole host of issues, including with respect to the Jewish community and its approach to Israel. You're well-connected. I, I don't know how you identify yourself, if, if you consider yourself part of the progressive left. What should we be unworried about and what should we be worried about? Well, I think it's a complicated question because it sort of depends what you mean by identity politics, right? It's weird to me to say the Jewish community is worried about identity politics because, you know, the whole idea of the Jewish community is itself a, a variety of identity politics, correct? Or the idea that you should have a certain view on Israel by virtue of your heritage is kind of very much in keeping with ideas about identity politics. I think that there's a broader backlash to kind of quote unquote wokeism or what's sometimes called critical race theory that people have basically tried to come up with catchphrases or buzzwords to encompass a whole bunch of related but sometimes disparate changes in language, in education, corporate practices, in generational divides over certain values. All these things have been subsumed under the idea of wokeness. And it's usually worth kind of disentangling what people mean, because I think everybody, more or less, are annoyed by some language changes. Other language changes maybe annoyed them at first, but come to seem more comfortable or intuitive. You know, maybe it took them a long time to get used to saying, you know, the singular they or the singular there, but now they see the utility of it for people in their lives. There's backlashes to a number of things, right? Like there's backlashes to corporate DEI programs, both, you know, both for their shallowness and also for their coerciveness. There's backlashes to a style of leftist politics that thinks it can change reality simply by changing the way people talk about reality or simply by trying to kind of like impose new social norms, you know, thinks you can kind of like, instead of letting new norms evolve organically, you have to impose them. And then I think there's just like a degree of panic in the established Jewish community because certain ideas about Israel, you know, or not even ideas, like kind of assumptions about Israel and assumptions about Jewish diaspora support for Israel are falling apart. And they're not falling apart because of identity politics or wokeness. They're falling apart because, you know, the kind of liberalism that has been a kind of deep part of the ethic of so much of the Jewish community, at least the reformed Jewish community, is really at odds with the realities of, of, of Israel and the occupation. The young Jews who are most horrified by the occupation, who are most passionate about Palestinian rights. In my experience, a lot of those people are people, I mean, Peter Beinart's not that young anymore, but they're people who like Peter Beinart, for whom kind of Judaism is very meaningful and important to them. And so there's a feeling of betrayal, whereas people for whom, you know, kind of their Jewish identity is somewhat tertiary, they just aren't as involved in these in these fights and these debates. 
Are you worried about um, the what seems to be a growing anti-Zionism in the progressive left, in particular on campus? No, I'm not. I mean, I think I think that anti-Zionism is a function to a large extent of what Zionism looks like right now. And I think it's really important to separate. I mean, I think there's anti-Zionism that is anti-Semitic, absolutely. But I think it's a huge mistake to conflate the two. And when you do conflate the two, you end up with things like what's happening at Harvard, where the former head of Human Rights Watch, you know, the son of a Jewish refugee from Germany, gets branded anti-Semitic because of his criticism of Israel. It's it's preposterous. What do you consider anti-Semitic in anti-Zionism? Give us an example or two of what does constitute anti-Semitism? Sure. People who blame all Jews for what Israel does. Like, for example, there's often spikes in anti-Semitic attacks when Israel is involved in military conflicts. And, you know, you'll see, yeah, attacks on Jews, demands that Jews take certain positions. I don't think I can name every example of every way in which kind of anti-Zionism can be anti-Semitic. I will say, let me talk about the kind of anti-Zionism that I think is not anti-Semitic, which is that I think a growing number of young Jews particularly have come to the conclusion that for a long time, it was very common to say that under the conditions of, of the occupation, Israel could either be a Jewish state, a democratic state, but not both. And there was always the sense that there was a tipping point that we were getting near. I mean, it's something I heard from many different Israeli politicians, you know, including Tzipi Livni. You know, if we keep going down this road, we're going to get to a point where Israel can be Jewish, it can be democratic, but not both. I think there's a lot of young people who look at Israel, who look at the fact that there is no prospect at this point for a two-state solution. The you know the kind of current government, which is going to further entrench the occupation, further entrench a system in which you know kind of different ethnic groups have 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 different rights under the law, and they say it's not that Israel is approaching this point; it's that it's past this point, and that basically there's nothing wrong with saying that you believe that. Everybody under the jurisdiction of the state of Israel should have equal democratic rights. In other words, what people refer to as a one state solution. Right. I, what I'm saying is, and, and I think there's a lot of arguments against that as well. You know, the arguments against it to me are primarily practical, right? That that it's most likely to end in a civil war that, that just brings you back to two states or if not something far worse. I think there's a lot of arguments against it. I also increasingly don't see very many alternatives if the two-state solution is truly dead. And I certainly don't think it's anti-Semitic to say that we don't believe in a system of, of de facto Jewish supremacy. Do you think, looking back at, I don't know how, how closely you've observed it or even covered it or written about it, but looking back at, say, the last 30 years since the Oslo process, do you assign most of the blame for the inability to reach a two-state solution on Israel or the Palestinians or both? I think, look, I think that there's obviously blame on both sides. I do think that Israel is fundamentally responsible for the occupation and that the occupation is the greatest barrier to a two-state solution. 
I, you know, the first time I was in Israel, I was younger. And I've had this experience that I think a lot of people have of just when you visit the occupied territories, when you talk to Palestinians, it's impossible, at least for me, to reconcile, you know, the kind of liberal Zionism I was raised with, with, with the reality of it. I would just give you uh, the other side. I, I, you know, I was supportive of the Oslo Accords, of course. I, I held a national position in the reform movement. And I remember the, I think it was about 10 or 12 days of Camp David, where if you, you recall Barack and Arafat and Clinton were together at Camp David, and it just never dawned on us that they would come out without an agreement. And basically, the Palestinians were offered what they said they wanted. They, they said they wanted two states with East Jerusalem as its capital, and there were going to be land swaps that essentially gave them what they wanted. And they rejected it at least three times uh, since. You know, I feel like there's there's so much argument about what they were actually offered. There's right. There's so much debate about, you know, th this question about were they offered everything they wanted or not that, you know, I feel like I've had these arguments with Palestinians who insist that, no, that's a myth. I've had these arguments with, you know, kind of people who are very pro-Israel, who insist that, you know, what this revealed was this essential Palestinian intransigence and rejectionism. But I just, I don't think the narrative is that simple. Mm -hmm. So you believe that the Palestinians still want a two-state solution with East Jerusalem as their capital? I mean, I think if you look at the polling, that's what it suggests, that most Palestinians still want their own state. But I do think you have more and more younger Palestinians who just say, no, we want one person, one vote in the state that we actually live in. And kind of how hypocritical to say that you, liberal Jews in the West, don't support that because you believe that it's more important to maintain demographic supremacy. I mean, how do you think about it? Like when you look at, you know, this kind of current government and its plans to extend Israeli basic law instead of military law over large swaths of the West Bank and to, you know, ban the Palestinian flag and to institutionalize a kind of more and more entrenched dual system of laws for the two people, like how do you justify it or to, how do you how do you how do you reconcile I shouldn't say you justify it, it's not your job but how do you reconcile your kind of humanism and liberalism with support for the state well first of all I don't like this government I've I've said it I've said it publicly I think elements of this government are dangerous and from my perspective I support those forces in Israel that represent another way but I'm a Zionist I've been a Zionist for my whole life, basically. And as I was saying before, I look at the history of the uh, Oslo peace process, and I was in the heart of the bastion of American Jewish liberalism. And we wanted, not only did we want, we assumed that they were going to come out of Camp David and sign uh, peace accords. After all, they had signed the Oslo Accords seven years before. And we were prepared to wage that fight for for public opinion and for support here in the United States in support of those who were going to advocate this two-state solution. And then the Palestinians rejected that. They had their reasons to reject it, but even even Bill Clinton was really basically taken aback that Arafat rejected what he called the most generous proposals more than he thought that Barack should have offered. And then they launched this vicious, vicious campaign of terrorism on Israeli streets. And that convinced most Israeli liberals in, and most of us in the West 
that, you know what, maybe we overlooked what was really at the heart of Palestinian national aspirations, which is, yes, they wanted a state of their own, but what they really wanted more than a state of their own was no Jewish state. And that's where we still are. There's no evidence to me. And I think I, I, I don't speak for other people, but I'm trying to characterize what I understand to be people who are in my camp and were in the straight up classic liberal camp that wanted this two-state solution. And that was what most people assumed was the majority of Israelis back in the year 2000. Can I ask you a question? Have you spent much time in the West Bank or in the occupied territories? I've spent time. I'd not, you know, I haven't spent days and days on end and speaking to Palestinians. No, but I have spent a lot because, of time. Because right, like most, I mean, most, you know, I don't know what the average age in the territories is right now, but it's quite young, right? So we're talking about people in general who were either children or not yet born when all this history that we're recounting happened. And so the idea that they should be consigned to these extremely circumscribed, degrading lives. I mean, I just I just don't know how to justify it unless you basically are saying you know, that the, the security of the Jewish people is more important to us. Well, what? And, and how, you know, and that, might you... Be a, that might be a valid thing for kind of Jews to say, but I don't understand why anybody would expect that to be, to seem convincing or valid to Palestinians. Well, how, again, it's, this is not your job, <laughs> but I, I'm just curious, how would you deal if you were a policymaker or you were advising policymakers in Israel, how would you deal with Hamas? What would you what would your advice be on policy? Well, I don't think any of this is about the policy in Hamas. I mean, certainly not when you're dealing with the West Bank, right? I mean, there's complicated questions about how you deal with Hamas in Gaza, but I don't know that you need to get to that level of, of difficulty to say that you need to freeze the settlement enterprise and start unrolling it as opposed to expanding it and making it permanent, right? I mean, I feel like there are there are kind of very hard questions, but there are also some pretty easy questions. And right now, even the easy questions are going the wrong way. Mm. Listen, this is fascinating to me. Before we uh, finish, I did want to ask you, you wrote a very compelling article lately about anti-Semitism. And in the meantime, we've seen the Kanye West incidences, Kyrie Irving. How do you see all of that? So I would say a couple of things. I think that there's no question that anti-Semitism is increasing and anti-Semitism is like the original conspiracy theory. And so wherever conspiracy theories and irrationality are increasing, you're going to see more and more anti-Semitism. I also think, and this is where I really fundamentally disagree with members of the Jewish community who are, in my opinion, excessively worried about kind of wokeness and anti-Zionism and what's going on in college campuses, even though you know, like I said, there are ways in which anti-Zionism can veer into anti-Semitism. Absolutely. But I still think that the primary threat to Jews in this country and and really Jews in most countries in the, in the diaspora comes from the far right. There's no question that the most violent threats to Jews in this country come from the far right. You know, Kanye West's anti-Semitism in particular, he kind of has, you know, there's elements of like black Israelite ideology, but it's mostly just kind of straight up classic far right anti-Semitism. And that is what scares me. I think that, you know, most anti-Zionists believe in a pluralistic democracy. I shouldn't say most anti-Zionists. There are many anti-Zionists who believe in pluralistic democracy and 
condemn Israel for its failure in those regards. And whether or not you think that the condemnations are fair, those people are basically, I think, my allies in the fight to maintain pluralistic democracy in the United States. Let me ask you one final question. Looking down the road, say, over the next five or 10 years, are you optimistic about the direction of the country? I mean, I'm Jewish, and so I'm not really an optimist by nature. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm more optimistic than I was a year ago because I do think that, you know, people, when Joe Biden gave that speech about the threats to democracy, there was so much kind of, you know, faux savvy eye rolling. And what we saw is that, you know, Americans really do care about their institutions, you know, including Americans who have politics that I find really abhorrent, you know, Brian Kemp. There's a lot of Republican voters who I disagree with about basically everything, but who really care about maintaining free and fair elections in this country. And so in that sense, I am more optimistic. And I'm also just, you know, kind of optimistic about the coming generations, you know, the electorate in even four years is going to look a lot different than it did four years ago. You know, in, the, in, in that sense, I'm optimistic, but, you know, I also think a lot can go wrong. Still have a lot to do. You know, the Jewish task is to repair the world, not all at one fell swoop, but generation after generation. So we still have a lot to do, but that's a good <laughs> way to end the podcast that we think we're going to be doing fine. Is that right? You know, I mean, what is the Gramsci quote? Pessimism of the intellect, <laughs> optimism of the will. <laughs> I want to uh, thank you very much. Thank you for who you are and for being such a forceful intellect. We'll continue to read everything you write, and we appreciate very much that you spent this time with us. Oh, thank you so much. I love this conversation with Michelle Goldberg. What an intellect. It's a beautiful thing to be on the receiving end of such lucidity. When you dialogue with someone so quick and so experienced in polemics, in framing arguments, you realize that this excellence doesn't just materialize. To be really good at something, you need to have innate talents disciplined by years of experience. Michelle Goldberg is an exceptional writer and thinker. I'm grateful to her for challenging me. We spoke about many topics. I'd like to focus on our conversation about COVID and about Israel. While seemingly unconnected, I think there is a common denominator between the two that is subtle but clear, at least as I see it. I didn't expect Ms. Goldberg to speak so strongly against school closings. She eloquently described what she called the unrelenting demands on parents. I was desperate to get my kids back to school, she said. She described the social and educational consequences on children as catastrophic. She mentioned that she disagreed with those who thought that there was no or little cost to wearing masks all the time, and pointed out that some establishments were open while others, like schools, were closed in part as a result of political power. This was surprising to me because back then and even now, these positions were largely expressed by conservatives. Leaving aside the inanity of those who claimed the pandemic was a hoax or that it would disappear in a few months, mainstream conservatives felt that we were overemphasizing the risks of infection and underestimating the risks of social isolation. It was conservatives more than liberals who warned against the dire social and economic consequences of prolonged closures. Generally speaking, they were frustrated by school closings, 
pointing out the immense harm to the social and intellectual development of children. Looking back at that period, I, too, didn't appreciate enough the effect of closures on parents. Frankly, my younger colleagues who had kids at home had to sit me down and explain to me how difficult their lives were, how homeschooling and attending to their kids all day compromised their time as well as their mental and emotional well-being. I hadn't appreciated how stressful their lives were because it wasn't my experience. My wife and I had been empty nesters for a decade. Here's the key point. I've always felt that our life experiences shape our worldview. Generally speaking, we are who we are first, and then we rationalize it. More often than not, it is our experiences that shape our philosophy and not the opposite. Therefore, even if the members of our own political or intellectual team felt that on balance we should keep schools closed if you had children at home, you were much more likely to appreciate the costs of school closures. Your experiences may have led you to prioritize the harm to children, your own children, over the risk to teachers. Our life experiences shape our worldview. And this leads me to some observations about Israel. Ms. Goldberg and I have different life experiences. She is a gifted author and columnist for the world's leading newspaper. She is immersed in the world of ideas and helps us to understand how these intersect and impact on social policies and behavior. Looking at what she described as the circumscribed and degrading lives of Palestinians, Ms. Goldberg asserted that there is no way to justify it unless the security of the Jewish people is more important to us. First, let me say that every right-minded person, Jews especially, should be troubled by the moral challenges arising from the unresolved Israel-Palestinian dispute. But second, speaking as just a plain Jew and a rabbi, of course the security of the Jewish people is more important to us than sacrificing Israeli lives to terrorists who manage to evade lax security measures. Very few of those security measures that anti-Zionists now decry, including the ugly security barrier crossing the West Bank, very few of those measures were present before the Palestinians launched a vicious, inhumane war on civilians in hospitals, cafes, buses, hotels, and schools. Only weeks after negotiating a permanent settlement. That's how they managed to perpetrate so much mayhem and murder. Israeli security was too lax. Israeli parents were afraid to send their kids to school. If you were living in Israel at the time, and experience the fear of not being sure your child would return from school in the afternoon? If you avoided shopping malls, public transportation, cafes, restaurants for fear of being blown up, you too would have probably demanded more security from your government, even if it saddened and troubled you to know that these measures would cause increased hardships on Palestinians. And remember, the Palestinians make their own decisions. They decided to reject peace. For a century now, they decide to teach their children from the earliest age to hate Jews. They decide to condone, encourage, and compensate terrorists. It's patronizing and quite elitist to sit in the West and give little or no consideration to the capacity of the Palestinian people to exercise moral agency and responsibility. As much as it is proper to call Israel to account for its mistakes and violations, we cannot relieve the Palestinians of the moral and political consequences of their own decisions. 
While I wasn't in the negotiating rooms, I do not buy the argument that the Palestinians did not receive the peace offers that American and Israeli negotiators say they did. We need to exercise common sense. We should listen to the Palestinians themselves, who have never agreed to a Jewish state side by side with a Palestinian state. We know what truly wanting peace looks like. It looks like the Abraham Accords. Ms. Goldberg asked me whether I have spent time in the West Bank and tried to understand the daily lives of Palestinians. I have spent considerable time visiting Palestinian villages, towns, and cities, speaking with many Palestinian representatives, journalists, analysts, and intellectuals. In the 1990s, I even met with Hamas members. But I have spent far more time with Israelis living five miles from Gaza, under constant indiscriminate fire from thousands of Hamas rockets. I've spent far more time with Israelis who live for days on end in bomb shelters, and Israeli families devastated from wanton terror organized and promoted by the very people with whom Israel was negotiating peace. I feel their every fear, every pain, and every loss. If I grew up in Ramallah, perhaps I would feel differently, but I am a Jew, and I feel my people's emotions to the core of my being. As I have emphasized many times, I am no fan of this Israeli government. It is politically and morally objectionable to me. From my perspective, the sooner it is replaced, the better, and it can't be soon enough. But anti-Zionists, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions activists, are not protesting Israeli policies. They were anti-Zionists before this government as well. Anti-Zionists, by definition, are against the very idea of a Jewish state, and that causes every fiber of my Jewish being to rebel. As a liberal Jew, I am in favor of coexistence. As a liberal Jew, I oppose a worldview that advocates there is no room in this world for one Jewish state. Until next time, this is In These Times. <laughs>